Jigger, do you say semi or semi? I say big rig. <laughs> Catherine, semi or semi? Yeah, I'm on the rig side. Turbine or turbine? Turbine. Turbine. Right. It's pecan rather than pecan. It's aunt rather than ant. There's a lot of things. What about aluminum? <laughs> <laughs> the Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverters for renewables. During these very uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and serving its customers around the world reliably and on time. SunGrow has also leveraged its network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is the leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to promoting widespread energy storage adoption while maintaining control of the manufacturing process domestically in order to stabilize and protect the U.S. grid. Find out more about CorePower's products and their manufacturing at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, Nikola versus Tesla. Two companies with two very different ways of cleaning up heavy-duty transport. What will win? Tesla's electric semi-model or Nikola's hydrogen model? And which CEO is the bigger showman? We'll look at the emerging rivalry that could shape the future of trucking, then, are we finally entering the era of the electric pickup truck? Lots of new models are hitting the internet. When will they actually hit the roads? And last, Lyft wants every car in its fleet to be electric in 10 years. The cars don't belong to Lyft, so how are they going to make that happen? It's all electric this week. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-pilots here, steering this episode with me. Catherine's in Washington, D.C. She is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Hi, Catherine. You're not in Washington. Why am I still saying you're in Washington, D.C.? You are in Virginia. You haven't been in Washington in months. No, I haven't. I, I don't go to Washington anymore. I only go places that my two feet can take me. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He is in Bethesda, Maryland. I presume you haven't been in Washington lately either. Bethesda is right there bordering Washington. Um, yeah, I never went there anyway. <laughs> but I do miss my Panera Bread where I used to have all my meetings. I haven't been there in ages. But, uh, you know, but I never really went to DC anyway. It's a schlep for us too. Uh, a reminder to our listeners, we're going to be off for two weeks coming up. We're going to take a little breather here before the summer or as the summer ramps up. So uh, we'll be back in mid-July. This will be our last episode for the next two weeks. As we record this, Tesla is the number one auto company in the world by market cap. That's incredible. An electric vehicle maker is number one by the value of its shares. But now another company, Nikola Motor, has edged into that top 10. Nikola is developing a hydrogen fuel cell heavy-duty truck and a network of hydrogen fueling stations, or it claims to be. Uh, and a lot of th shade has been thrown on this company. When its reverse IPO put its market cap alongside Ford Motor Companies without a single product on the market, there was predictable derision. But it did make Elon Musk 
start talking about his heavy-duty truck model again. And that got a lot of other people comparing fuel cell models to battery electric models in the trucking space. But what does a Nikola versus Tesla matchup really look like in heavy-duty trucking? If you are looking for a deep dive on the mysteries and the hype of Nikola Motor, you can listen to a recent Interchange episode that Shale Khan and I recorded a couple weeks ago. We go deep into how the reverse IPO worked and what the company's claims are, and uh, you can just search back a couple weeks in the Interchange feed. But let's talk about Nikola versus Tesla more explicitly. Jigger, what are the stakes of this matchup? How badly does the world need cleaner, heavy-duty trucking? Well, I think it's important to start around health, right? When you think about when the COVID crisis hit, we all talked about how we had cleaner air in Delhi and LA and other places. What they found after doing a lot of research is that in fact, um, passenger cars have very little to do with dirty air in many of these cities where you have uh, good auto emissions regulations. That in fact, the dirtiest air is really coming from these heavy trucks, right? Class 8 vehicles and other vehicles, some of which are poorly maintained, others of which just need the raw horsepower to be able to move goods and services around. And since everyone's been buying um, just as much stuff as they did before, except it's all getting delivered now, uh, emissions in LA haven't fallen as fast as they could have because of all the heavy truck traffic. So you're starting to see a lot of interest from the California Air Resources Board and others, and frankly, just from companies that want to do the right thing, to say, we've got to figure out how to tackle not only our climate emissions, but also our pollution emissions that come from our heavy trucks. And so I think that there was a lot of interest when the Tesla Semi launched, but now there's renewed interest with Nikola's announcement and partnership with Anheuser-Busch around, you know, what should we be doing and what timeline should we be doing it on? Catherine, what's going on here in the trucking world? Why is pollution from trucking increasing? And what's the, what's the, the need here to address it? Yeah, so while 23% of our greenhouse gases are from transportation, a full 6% of the total greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. is from trucking. So this is really important sector, and I think there is a great opportunity to really change it for the health and safety of certainly everybody, but also the drivers. Um, And to try to make sure that we can change the ecosystem such that the drivers are able to get where they need to go more efficiently and in a cleaner way. Are we just buying more stuff? Is that what's happening here, Jigger? Well, it's just—it's not just buying more stuff. We've also, even though we actually worked pretty hard under the Obama administration to de-bottleneck uh, the rail infrastructure, we really haven't put in place all the intermodal um, infrastructure that we need to be able to keep goods on you know, ships and then rail all the way to the end. And so what's happened is we've continued to use the highway system as the escape valve for all the extra goods and services that we're purchasing, right? And so we could, of course, just upgrade all of our trains. I mean, in fact, coal shipments on trains are way down uh, because we've shut down coal plants, but they haven't replaced all of that infra- all that traffic with packages because they don't actually have all the right infrastructure to do it. Well, given the number of microphones that I've shipped to people over the last three months, I think I've increased carbon emissions from the trucking sector by a percentage point or two. I think it's worse than that because you actually ship it next day. And so that's that's by airplane. 
Yeah, one thing that was interesting is that the Diesel Brothers, I don't know if you all watch them on YouTube, it's new for me. They're pretty convinced that eventually Diesel will be banned. And they're big aficionados for Diesel. And yet they're looking at, you know, how are we going to need to change if we're no longer going to be able to use Diesel in a way that we can still get what we want, the features that we want out of a truck, no matter the size. Okay, let's talk about the approaches of both of these companies. Jigger, lay out the very brief case for Tesla's approach and for Nikola's approach. Well, I think it's important to start with the fact that both of them have the same approach, which is to electrify trucks, right? That they're both electric. So I think the notion that like the fuel cell is running the wheels is not true. Like even in the Nikola vehicle, it's a battery that's running the wheels. Um, and that's something that that Ballard figured out a long time ago, is that you don't want a fuel cell directly running the wheels. You want a fuel cell basically recharging the batteries. And so I think we want to just start there. I think the the reason for their different approaches is that is that what what happens when you need that much range on a heavy duty truck is you need an extraordinary amount of battery capacity, right? And so you probably are talking somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 25,000 pounds of batteries, depending on how much range that you want, right? And so each truck and trailer combo could weigh 80,000 pounds fully loaded in a Tesla Semi, which, you know, what the reason why our highways get destroyed is because of heavy trucks, right? It's not because of, of your car that's going over it over and over again, right? That's why they have those weighing stations on the side of the road, right? And so either you're going to be able to ship less product with a Tesla Semi, or you're going to have to change the regulations around, you know, how heavy these trucks can be, right? And so what, what Trevor has done is something you can do, frankly, with diesel as well. That, that's Trevor Milton, the founder and CEO of Nikola. Exactly. I mean, what he's done is just said, let's use a hybrid approach, right? Which is exactly what the Chevy Volt was. It's lots of other people are saying the same thing, is that instead of carrying around all this extra battery, why not replace it with a fuel cell, which is a lot lighter compared to the to the batteries, and hydrogen, which is very light, right? And just recharge the the battery. And that when you need to fill up, you go to a place and you refuel it with hydrogen. And crucially, that fueling time plays into what you use as the backup. So rather than having to charge batteries, which generally take longer, being able to refill a fuel is much, much quicker. And the argument's exactly the same to what T. Boone Pickens uh, said back in 2008 when he said that all of our trucks should be switched over to CNG. What he said back then was basically there's less than 1,700 truck refueling stations in the country that need to be converted to CNG to be able to, you know, accommodate 90 plus percent of all truck traffic. And the same thing is what Trevor's saying, right? That there's something on the order of a thousand locations that need to be upgraded to hydrogen to meet like 80 plus percent of all the truck traffic. Okay, so then which approach wins out? There are limitations to both. The Nikola approach allows the driver to drive farther without refueling, but there are virtually no hydrogen refueling stations across the country. The Tesla semi doesn't go as far. 
I don't even, what does it have, like half the range or something like that? Um, yeah, well, right now it has half the range. But as the batteries get better, I think they're expanding the range to, you know, what what is currently on the road. And But Tesla has this network of supercharging stations, which, could, which it could potentially convert into like mega charging stations so that you could charge these semis. Um, so, you know, you have a range issue with Tesla's model, but you have the infrastructure built in. Whereas with Nikola, you have the range, but you don't have much infrastructure. And Nikola actually wants to build the infrastructure. So given what we know, what's the winning approach? It feels like there's some pretty... Well, it's not about the winning approach. It's more about the, the, you know, what people are saying and whether it's possible, right? I think, you know, when Tesla started, Tesla said the same thing. They said, nobody actually, you know, wants to drive our car nationwide because the infrastructure doesn't exist and we're going to build out this whole supercharging network, right? And at the time, people thought they were idiots. They were saying, like, why are you taking on the responsibility of building out this entire thing? And, oh, by the way, you're using a charging standard that nobody else has accepted, right? Their plug is not the same that, it, that the Bolt or other folks use. And people thought they were crazy, right? And at the time, their market cap was much lower, right? And... In the end, everyone's now saying that it's easier to drive across the country with the Tesla than it is to drive across the country now with the Chevy Bolt or with another, you know, electric vehicle that uses the Chachamo um, standard, right? Because Electrify America hasn't finished their job. So I don't think that what Trevor Milton is saying is implausible. I think what makes Tesla more likely to succeed is that they're a bigger company with a bigger market cap, with more employees, with more, you know, sort of learning under their belt. And so it's likely that they're more likely to succeed. But I think that what Trevor is suggesting, while he's remarkably early in his evolution, given that they haven't shipped any product, um, is not as implausible as what Elon was suggesting in 2009. So as you said, Jigger, Nikola doesn't have any models out yet. Uh, It released a prototype a couple of years ago, but we haven't seen any commercial models. it hasn't really made any significant moves on building out the hydrogen infrastructure. I think it bought equipment for electrolyzers, but like we're at the very, very beginning stages here. Um, And Tesla hasn't released anything either. I mean, Tesla has also released a prototype. It's got these fancy sketches on its website, but both of these companies do not have a commercial product out right now. Um, Who is closest to commercialization at the moment? Well, I mean, I think you're going to have to believe that Tesla's closer, right? Because they actually have the batteries. And I mean, this isn't actually that hard to do, right? It's not like um, there's some fundamental breakthrough that Tesla's waiting for before they can launch. It's really more about, you know, them focusing on their Model Y and fixing all of the defects that they've been shipping out and fixing the fact that J.D. Power and Associates gave them the worst product quality rating uh, yesterday. And, you know, and then the question is, when do you put engineers on the Tesla Semi as opposed to on, you know, fixing those other problems, right? So I don't think people believe that Tesla has a lot of showstoppers between getting their product on market. I think um, it's really more about when when they're going to focus on it. I think that for Nikola, it's really, a, you know, there have a lot of showstoppers, right? I mean, Nell has to actually continue to build out all of the um, the hydrogen stations. They just gave them a $34 million contract to start the first couple. Nell is from, you know, a spin out of Statoil, you know, Equinor, and they're publicly traded in Norway. And, you know, I have no idea how they have a $1.2 billion market cap, but I guess nobody's, you know, living with the laws of gravity and the stock market anymore. And 
you know, like they have a lot of unknowns in how they roll things out, right? And so, and as you stated before, I mean, you know, some of these folks like Anheuser-Busch and others are not going to roll out these trucks unless they know they can safely refuel from, you know, one location to the drop-off point and back. Well, color me doubtful about Nikola because of uh, what this company has been talking up without really releasing anything. Now, this follows the Tesla model. You know, Elon Musk talks up products all the time without having them available, but at least the company has products to show for itself. Elon was producing cars for a year and a half before the company went public. So it's a bit of a different story. All the same, both of these CEOs, Trevor Milton and Elon Musk, are both P.T. Barnum-like figures. They believe in uh, talking up their products before actually producing them. And, you know, the hype cycle will carry them forward. So... We know Elon Musk well. We know his pattern of behavior. We know how he likes to develop and tease products. What about this guy, Trevor Milton? Catherine, you've been doing a little bit of digging on him. What's he all about? Yeah, yeah. I did something I kind of never expected to to do, which was to listen to the Truck Show podcast. Now, don't get me wrong. I used to drive a Toyota 4x4, so, and I learned to drive, actually, on a pickup truck. But I had never listened to this podcast. It was really interesting. They interviewed Milton for a long time. He comes across very much as like a regular bro kind of guy. Um, He grew up, his dad was an engineer on a train and he rode the rails all the time uh, between Utah and Nevada. And he said at six years old, an engineer said to him, you know, she took him and showed him how the electric system worked on a locomotive and they were riding along a highway. And he said, someday we will have the same kind of electric locomotives on the highway. And that was at six years old. And ever since then, Milton says he's been thinking about that and dreaming about that and wanting to put what is essentially a train engine onto the highway. And so it sounds from his backstory that this is very internalized. It's something he's been thinking about for a long time. He took his hydrogen storage sale, uh, one of his startups, that funding and started to build this new company, which, you know, he his attitude is we're an energy company. We're trying to displace oil companies. We're not trying to be go head to head on trucking and that entire infrastructure, we're completely different. We're an energy company. We are, we have to own the entire ecosystem, whether it's the truck and fuel, the service, warranty, maintenance, everything is going to be part of our service. And another interesting thing is, is he's only going for like 10% of the market, which is 30, between 30 and 50,000 trucks which would be given, you know, a trillion dollar company still. But he's not trying to take over the whole market. He's trying to take up a certain segment of the market. The death knell for any company. We're not a trucking company. We're an energy company. I feel like all the companies that have struggled have talked about how they're like they're a broader energy company. <laughs> we're not a soda company. We're an energy soda company. We're no. a lifestyle company. I am. Um, so the one thing I would quibble with on that, which... Which, you know, I think Trevor probably believes what he says, although I'm not sure. I think is that the real difference between Tesla and and Nikola, in my opinion, on their approaches is that Elon fancies himself a guy who can basically become a PhD in anything he puts his mind to and reads about. Um, I don't think Trevor fancies himself the same. And when you look at Nikola's stock ownership, 
what he's done is basically outsourced all the engineering to others, right? So the way that he capitalized his company was he got Bosch to do all the engineering, $150 million worth of engineering. And then Bosch then realized that he didn't really have the money to pay. And they converted that into stock in Nikola. Now, they've made like $3 billion on that stock. So I think they did pretty well for themselves. And he's done it again with Hanwha, right? So Hanwha now owns a lot of stock in Nikola. And Hanwha is doing all the engineering, you know, for free um, for these units. And so these units are going to be uh, the truck industry's competitive vision to the Tesla Semi, right? And so I feel like everyone thinks that Nikola is actually the brains behind this. But the brains behind this is actually going to be whoever funds Nikola, right? So it's either going to be Volvo or Hanwha or Bosch or some of these other auto and truck makers. And then separately, I think the energy system is absolutely going to come from the oil industry. And so he's going to outsource the whole thing to Shell or BP or whoever else, because all of those guys would rather us move to a hydrogen economy than move to an electric economy, because they get the fact that even though they're buying into the electric grid, they get the fact that they're not going to really own the molecules like they do in the gasoline and diesel space. And so for years, Shell and BP and others have been pushing hydrogen as a solution. And so I think you'll see that in this fight between Tesla and Nikola, that the the traditional truck manufacturers are going to hedge by investing in Nikola, and the traditional fuel producers are going to hedge by investing in Nikola. Yeah, Stephen, you you brought up an interesting point about these two guys, these two characters. And certainly Milton portrays himself as this regular guy. He has this partnership with Diesel Brothers. He's come up with an off-road vehicle called the Reckless and another one called the NZT. He has a watercraft wave runner, which are kind of, these are just fun projects he wanted to embark on. And part of that feels very competitive with Tesla. Um, he also sort of, you know, poo-poo's Elon's truck as being, you know, not really what truckers want for the trucking lifestyle. So it's um, his sort of pickup truck model. So um, it's it's pretty interesting because they definitely are characters. Um, Milton claims to basically worship Elon, like very much hold him in high regard and that he says, you know, Elon hates me. But there is a lot of posturing on both sides, it feels. Yeah. Well, I want to keep discipline on the trucking, but since you mentioned the Wave Runner and the 4x4s and like he's got a bunch of like re- basically recreational electric models that they're going to be developing alongside a, a light duty truck, which we can talk about in the next segment. This is also what bothers me about the company is that they're there. He claims to be focused on this fuel cell semi model, but like he's also distracted by all these other like recreational vehicles. You're that, just pissed because he doesn't have a flamethrower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wait, he's not building roof tiles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where's your solar roof? Has it been shipped yet to your house? <laughs> it's just a big distraction. They both are defined by their distractions. What about a boring company? I mean, for the love of That's... God, or a baby that has no name. Like, I mean, come on. Like, it's just like, I mean, to me, they're both the same. They just have different IQs, I think. But the more interesting thing about this, for me, is actually where Elon's hatred of fuel cells has come from. Um, because I, I have to say it's bordering on 
um, incoherent that he's so anti-fuel cells, right? I mean, fuel cells have been around forever. The space program has used them for forever. I, I mean, it feels like, you know, one of the theories of the case is that this is actually just Elon lashing out at Toyota when Toyota snubbed him in 2010 and 2012 um, when he had uh, these battery quality issues and Toyota said you need to put a battery shield on his batteries and he started shipping cars without a battery shield and he just lashed out and became anti-fuel cells then and it's just stayed that way because Toyota is so pro-fuel cells. Um, I don't know what the origin story is, but I just think that the 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 use of math all the time to say fuel cells are worse than batteries literally makes no sense. This is not about round trip efficiency. This is not about um, figuring out how many, you know, uh, joules of energy it takes to create motive power. It's about figuring out how to create cultural change in an area where um, you've actually not had a lot of disruption, right? I mean, this is an area where people have for a long time believed that without a very powerful diesel engine, you can't actually do business and you can't go up hills and you can't just, you know, do the work of shipping goods from point A to point B. So then what does this all amount to? We have two modern business bro slash showmen who are battling off uh, and claiming that they are representing the future of trucking. Where does this rivalry take us? Are we going to see trucks on the road? And will this make a significant impact in any time soon? So my bet is five years. And my bet is also that Nikola will win the culture war, but Tesla might win the product war, depending on batteries. Fascinating prediction. Mine is going to be a little bit longer <laughs> and throw a little shade on Stephen. I think that it's good, that we're going to have a working semi at scale, a working 18-wheeler big rig maybe. Semi is sort of a Tesla-branded word. I can't believe I'm using it. Um, but I think it's going to be before your autonomous vehicles hit. So, so from that perspective, I think it'll be relatively soon. But... Um, you know, I think that the the bigger thing I'd say is that hydrogen, I think, is really coming into its own, right? I mean, this week, Plug Power, uh, which we support, bought United Hydrogen and Geiner and has basically created the largest sort of hydrogen platform in the United States that they're going to start rolling out to all of their distribution centers for Amazon and Walmart, right? So I think that you're starting to see deployment-led innovation on the hydrogen side in the same way that Tesla kicked off deployment-led innovation around the electric vehicle charger side. And so because of that, I feel like hydrogen and fuel cells are more in reach. I'm still pretty anti-fuel cells, frankly, for um, passenger vehicles. I don't understand the Mirai and never will. But I do see a pathway to fuel cells being used as range extenders for, you know, class eight trucks, for uh, buses and for some of those uh, types of applications as opposed to very heavy uh, batteries. Well, I won't make any predictions, but I will say that Nikola's belief that they are going to build both the trucks and this network of hydrogen fueling stations leaves me thinking that they have a disadvantage here. I just don't see how they're going to build out both. Well, you know, at least uh, at, at least he's uh, going to come out with the honey badger. <laughs> well, that that is a tease for the next segment. Uh, so coming up after a quick break, could next year finally be the year of the electric pickup truck, plus electrifying your next ride share? 
First, a word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. When SunGrow realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty. It prioritized the safety of employees by investing in measures to protect workers from infection. And it is closely working with suppliers and customers to deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule to project developers around the world. Because SunGrow inverters are integrated into some of the biggest solar and battery projects. Uh, around the world. Uh, SunGrow has also leveraged its logistics network across the country in the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can find out more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand for energy storage. In fact, Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S., owned by an American company. That facility will also leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers an end-to-end energy storage solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. You can learn more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, corepower.com. The Ford F-150 is not just an icon. It is a sales monster. It has been the top-selling vehicle of any kind in the U.S. for as long as anyone can remember. It sold twice as many vehicles as the top-selling passenger car so far this year. The number two and number three vehicles in America are also pickup trucks, the Chevy, Silverado, and the Ram. Now, this matters because pickup trucks and SUVs are much more polluting than sedans, of course, and they get far worse miles per gallon. So when are we going to get a competitive electric pickup? Now, Ford says it will have an electric F-150 soon. Tesla debuted a prototype Cybertruck. We had a discussion about that when that was released. Nikola says it's building the electric Badger, as Jigger mentioned at the end of last segment. Steve Burns is building the Endurance at the old Lordstown plant. But we're still waiting for this market to pop. Jigger, are we at the start of something meaningful for electric pickups. Yeah, and I think that the electric pickup market is going to take off very quickly. And remember, one of the the big laggards in the country are the electric utilities, right? I mean, they have not uh, converted most of their fleet to electric vehicles. And their number one reason is, is that they need a pickup truck. And that without a pickup truck, they can't actually electrify their fleet. So I think if you have these pickup trucks coming to market, then, you know, you could see electric vehicles, uh, sorry, electric utility companies being the first consumers in for fleet applications. Um, And so, I I mean, my sense is, is that this is something that, frankly, I think Elon and others should have prioritized uh, earlier, but I'm glad to see it coming. And I do think there's going to be a lot of demand. This feels like an area where we've seen a lot of announcements, but very limited activity in terms of production. So what is telling you that like, we're actually seeing a ramp up in meaningful production and eventual delivery to customers? Well, I don't know that I've done a whole bunch of research on whether these guys can produce enough vehicles. But I'm saying that I think there's a lot of demand for the vehicles. I think that people have been waiting for an electric version of a pickup truck, because in general, I think that that's where a lot of the emissions are. And frankly, for a lot of b- small business owners, um, as well as utility companies and others, you know, they've got a vehicle that they need, they may only need to go 50 to 80 miles 
a day, right? They're just, you know, bringing over solar panels to go install in your house or whatever, but they actually need a pickup truck. They can't, or they maybe need a Dodge Sprinter van, uh, which has electric versions in Europe, but not here in the U.S. yet. A lot of those sales, though, are not because they're electric, but because they have features and attributes that are superior to internal combustion engines, like better torque and pickup and everything. So I think you're going to see that features are a big deal. I reached out to Jim Chen of Rivian. We've talked about Rivian before. They also have SUVs and some pickup trucks that are coming down the line, and they're taking pre-orders too. And he thinks of 2020 not as the year of the pickup truck, but as the year of the awakening, that people are becoming much more aware of it, that a lot more companies are in the mix, and there are going to be a lot more options, but that he thinks 2021 is going to be the year of the pickup truck for really getting them off the assembly line and getting people buying them. But that right now, the awareness is growing. So we may have more companies with large fleets buying these trucks in 2021 and beyond. But let's talk about individual truck buyers. Um, So truck buyers stick to brands. They are some of the most loyal brand conscious consumers. And that has implications for how they potentially buy electric pickups. Like, you know, you could imagine, we talked about this when the Cybertruck model was released. I think that there's going to be a certain slice of Tesla fanatics that want the Cybertruck. But when you actually look at people who are working in agriculture, working in construction, who need these trucks, very few of them are going to care about the Cybertruck. They want something that looks and feels and performs like the trucks that they are used to. So what does that behavior and that brand consciousness do to how people potentially adopt these electric pickup trucks? Well, it depends on if they have a choice, right? So if the F-150 launches next year, which is what they're claiming, um, with a little bit of delay because of COVID, um, then people will have choices, right? And they might choose the branded version because it has more support you know, theoretically from dealers and all sorts of other stuff, right? Um, and if they don't have a choice, and it's only going to be, you know, Lordstown Motors or Rivian or, you know, whoever else, then, you know, there's gonna be a lot of early adopters that get those vehicles, right? I think that my point is, I think there's just a lot of demand in the marketplace. I think, you know, in terms of the different sectors and segments, um, I certainly don't think that people who use all the features you know, towing boats, et cetera, are going to be buying an electric truck. I mean, there's going to be always that guy who does it and tows his boat across the country just to prove to everybody that he can. You know, but there's a lot of glam buyers, right, who just buy a pickup truck just to go to work and back. And, you know, a lot of those folks might go electric too. The other interesting thing about these pickup trucks, though, is they have these uh, inverters built in. So, you know, instead of having a diesel engine at the work site, you can actually just plug in electrical loads directly into the the truck. And so I think there's a lot of these features that will have like lawn care companies and, you know, other folks who, you know, I think are just tooling around town that need pickup trucks, considering, you know, being early adopters. Catherine, did you get sucked into the world of automotive podcasts on this topic as well? <laughs> no, no, I just, um, I did look at a lot of websites and a lot of videos about uh, electric pickup trucks. And one thing that uh, Jim from Rivian was telling me was that 
when they look at their market segment, they're saying, just as, say, Audi and Mercedes are kind of the Brooks Brothers of cars, um, that Rivian is like the Patagonia, like a little pricier, but very functional. And I think it is not dissimilar from what Tesla has done with cars, where first they made something everybody wanted, and then they made something that people could afford. And I think that's what's going to happen with these trucks. It's like there people are all these companies, Lordstown, Rivian, the Badger from Nikola, these are going to be things people want, may not be able to afford them right now. But it'll get it in their heads that you can do better with electric. Um, you'll get better attributes and you'll get better performance. And then we'll be able to you know, shift to the F-150. And eventually those other prices will come down too with scale. Yeah, I don't know that it's a Patagonia. I think it's more like Cartier. But uh, my my sense is is that like, Tom Ford. Yeah, exactly. I my Patagonia jacket. You know, I just turned it back in and they repaired it after twenty years. Um, but it, you know, to me, it's really th- that's a classic thing, though, right? Whether it's muscle cars or other things, you you know, start with a car that's a million dollars, you sell a hundred of them, you know, and you get people interested in new technology. And then as the technology gets more mature, you bring down the cost. And so I'm a big fan of what all these guys are doing. And I certainly think that dealing with the luxury end of the market is the right way to start. Um, But I, I, I do think that I do think that we have given the electric pickup truck a pass for many years. And it's something that I think that, you know, I don't know exactly whose fault it is, frankly, but it's somebody's fault, right? Like we should have had an electric pickup truck sooner. Um, I actually, you know, retrofitted an S10 pickup um, in college, like in 1993. So like it wasn't hard back then. We just ripped out the the bed in the back and put in a bunch of lead-acid batteries. Um, so like, I, you know, this is, th- I'm actually quite shocked and disappointed at how long it's taken to come out with this vehicle, but I do think that it's incumbent upon electric utility companies, first and foremost, to adopt this at speed and scale. And if they don't, then shame on them. Yeah, you can't tackle electrification without pickup trucks. And the political dynamics and political will on both sides of the aisle has really not taken that seriously and moved with electrification policy. By the way, I'd even say this is true for SUVs, right? The number of SUV models that are electric is paltry. And I don't understand it because people regularly spend 80,000 bucks for their luxury SUV. And so the numbers actually work. I mean, I don't, I just don't understand it. I mean, I know that Elon's got this crossover, which is fine, but like, it does seem like we need like a real SUV. I mean, at the very, I mean, I'm glad that there's the Model X and you've got a minivan, but, uh, but it just feels like, you know, that the, the part of the market is really, really not being served. Let's talk about a third story about mass electrification and finding all sorts of electric solutions for different types of cars that are zipping us all around the country. Uh, Ride sharing. So we probably know by now that app-based ride companies like Lyft are among the largest transportation providers in major cities. Now, there is a lot of debate about the environmental cost of this ride sharing. At first, when Uber and Lyft and some other smaller competitors came out, they said, this is the environmental friendly option. But it turns out that for about 60% of trips in large cities, the user would have taken public transportation or walked or biked if the, the, the ride hailing company option wasn't there. 
And then came the really bad news. California air authorities found that ride-sharing cars have 50% higher greenhouse gas emissions per mile than regular cars. And that is because a lot of these cars are just like moving around the city without passengers. Many of them are sitting in traffic. They're causing more traffic because people are not taking public transport transportation. They're instead taking these cars. So there are a bunch of factors that show that these are actually dirtier per ride. And that put Lyft and Uber in the sights of regulators. Before they could crack down, Lyft all of a sudden came out with this announcement that all its cars will be all electric in a decade. So what are they trying to do here and how are they going to do it? Catherine, what is Lyft announcing here? Yeah, so interestingly, they're also couching this as using COVID as an accelerant to a cleaner future. They're, as you say, trying to get to 100% by 2030. They had, uh, since 2018, a carbon offset program, which they're going to stop. So it looks like their emissions may go up in the near term. But they're trying to tackle it in three ways. One is through Express Drive. Uh, which they want to convert to electric by 2026. And that's their rental car program. So say you're a driver and you don't have a car to use, you would rent an electric car or one of their cars through this express drive and be able to use that car as a driver. Um, And the second is the consumer rental car program because they have started also renting cars to consumers so they would convert those to electric. Their autonomous vehicle program, which I am very unclear as to where that stands right now. And then finally, the last bit is personal cars and that is much more difficult because you know, while you could get a customer to say, I would prefer having a green mode in my driver, um, certainly you have a lot of cars out there that are on the road that uh, of various types, including hybrids, which are not going to qualify under what Lyft wants to do. They want full electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles. And so beyond the rental program, Catherine which is a small slice of drivers, how are they going to encourage their other drivers who are just independent contractors to get electric vehicles? Well, it's interesting because they're not really doing anything directly. They're not giving them incentives yet. What they're saying is they're kind of trying to push on public policy to accelerate parity for the cost of EVs, um, for clean vehicle standards, incentives, charging infrastructure, and that sort of thing. Um, They're hoping that demand will simply encourage lift drivers to switch over but i do think you have a big issue of all these cars out there and people people who are driving lift are not maybe in the market to buy a brand new car so um i'm not exactly sure if they're going to need to put something in place to encourage monetarily their drivers to change jigger what is the meaning of this announcement is this a hard thing that lift is doing uh so in may of this year the California Air Resources Board basically said that they were going to start regulating uh, rideshare companies that had over 5 million miles of travel, um, which was only Uber and Lyft, right? The rest of all the ridesharing companies combined, uh, other than Uber and Lyft, uh, drove 5.9 million miles in California. And uh, so, I mean, this was a direct response to winning the PR war versus CARB, right? It's a lot better to say we're doing this proactively than to say we got forced to do this by the California Air Resources Board. Separately, the CARB, remember, was going to mandate all electric vehicles by 2025. And uh, and so was the legislation. And so Lyft is saying through this that we want to push that out to 2030 because we don't want to meet it by 2025. I think that the the other thing I would say is that 
the drivers that are currently enrolled in their express drive program, which is where Lyft doesn't really subsidize, but helps bring scale and lower costs to drivers who want to rent vehicles through them. Um, they're the ones who drive 40 to 50,000 miles a year. Um, so while the number of cars in that program might only be a couple hundred thousand cars, it is the vast majority of the miles that, that Lyft uh, drivers drive is with the cars that Lyft themselves rents to the drivers or the drivers independently rent by themselves from Hertz or budget or other things, right? So the number of personal vehicles um, is a lot, right? There's like a million drivers and many of them have personal vehicles. But those drivers are driving after work for an hour. They're not actually the big culprits in terms of uh, emissions. And so you really can solve this entire problem or the vast majority of it with about 400,000 vehicles. And they could start buying all of them next week. Uh, the Express Drive program, they are those are generally uh, leased vehicles, not dissimilar to what Hertz and Avis and those guys do, which are generally 30-month leases. So they're all going to be expiring within 30 months. So you could imagine every one of those vehicles in 2022 could be converted into electric. Um, so we don't have to wait till 2030. And I, I think it's actually um, really... Uh, a failure on the part of policymakers if they wait until 2030. So if they accelerate it and they do it by 2022, Lyft is saying it's going to be a lot more expensive than hybrid vehicles. So what are the cost assumptions that we're working with here if we do it earlier than the 2030 timeframe? Well, I think the first thing that we should recognize is that we don't care if it costs more. I mean, like this notion that 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 this ride sharing service needs to be fifty cents cheaper while destroying the planet doesn't make any sense to me, right? So if you're going to increase vehicle emissions by sixty percent versus the alternative according to CARB's data, well then you know pay a little bit more to like you know to reverse that. It's not going to be more than an extra fifty cents you know for each passenger. Separately. I don't even think that 50 cents is real. Remember, the vast majority of EV fast charging stations and even level two stations are fully underutilized, right? So when you look at Blink or EVgo or ChargePoint or even Electrify America, their average utilization rate is 10%. It's less than 10%. And then in fact, even the Rocky Mountain Institute is saying that by 2025, we might get to 16% utilization. So if there was a whole bunch of other vehicles that were utilizing these charging stations, that would not be a bad thing and that would probably reduce costs for everyone. The last piece of it is, remember, we have electric vehicle, used electric vehicles coming out the yin-yang. I mean, when you think about how many cars are leased and all these cars have 200 mile plus ranges and nobody is buying them used. And so there is actually a used car crisis in this country from electric vehicles. Guess who could use them? Ride-sharing drivers. And so I just think that the notion that I should be crying for ride-sharing drivers, um, when uh, the other thing is that they actually, their number one cost if they're enrolled in the express drive program is fuel. And so if you could actually get them cheaper fuel, policymakers could solve this problem by subsidizing charging rates through the utility companies. So I don't see this as actually a cost issue, even though Lyft and Uber and others are making it out to be. I think this is about a willpower issue and getting the politicians to realize this is actually the single largest policy 
they could do in most influential policy to bring down the cost of passenger EVs. 400,000 EV sales is massive. Yeah. I mean, when you're saving 50 to $70 a week on fuel, when you're driving as much as they are, it uh, it really it really does make a difference. I was looking at some of what uh, different countries have been doing. And, you know, 45 countries have targets for EVs now um, by 2030. 75 countries have something on EVs. I mean, the U.S. is so far down the list. We've hardly done anything in our policies. They're not really moving the needle on getting EVs to be purchased. How big of a deal is this, Catherine? I think it's a big deal. I think Jigger makes a good point about their express drive, the rental car business. And I think looking at what's happening with Hertz and other rental car organizations, having all those electric vehicles in rideshare, because we're going to need rideshare for a long time if people can't take the bus right now to get to work for COVID. So I do think it's a serious commitment. We just have to see how they carry it out. Maybe Lyft can partner with Trevor Milton and get them all electric dune buggies. Get the diesel <laughs> brothers out there. <laughs> Let's turn to our free electrons now. Catherine, what is your free electron this week? I have two, one really quick thing and another one. So just for everybody to pay attention, next Tuesday, June 30th, the report will finally be out from the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the House of Representatives. And that's the report that will look economy-wide on what are all the things that we need to do to, and what are all the policies we can put forward um, that will help reduce our climate crisis. So look for that on Tuesday. I'm really excited to see what it says and uh, look forward to then implementing some of those things in the coming years. Um, the second piece I have is a really interesting Twitter thread from Laura Casey, and it's at Laura Casey ALPSC. She's a candidate for the Alabama Public Service Commission. The commission has three seats and they have four year terms, but there are no term limits. And right now there's one seat up by a current um, commissioner named Twinkle Andress Cavanaugh. She uh, She's an animal hospital owner and also a commissioner on the Public Utility Commission. And Laura Casey was in a hearing with many other people at, um, in which Alabama Power, which is owned by Southern Company, was uh, talking about their changes and increases in taxes to customers for solar systems, which has really been problematic for people in Alabama. It's just cost too much because of this tax. And she was recording the hearing, which you are allowed to do by law. The commissioners had her removed Um from the building uh, by security. They took her cell phone. They adopted then new rules exempting themselves, the commission, from any Alabama Open Meetings Act so they could do whatever they wanted with the utility. And now the utility has gone on to ask for another billion dollars of customer charges for a new power plant. So um, there are people trying to change uh, some of these utilities in the South. I was just in an IRP proceeding in Mississippi this week. Um, they were not like this, I have to say. Um, but it's a really interesting Twitter thread. It's something people need to pay attention to. And hopefully we can make some changes so that you get people in commissions who are at least willing to be transparent and listen to arguments on both sides. Well, and I think it's important because Alabama is always top three in terms of highest electricity bills in the United States. Yes, they and always is, say they have the lowest rates, but they have the highest bills. And this is the biggest problem, right? It's just, it's it's a travesty. And it, well, it links to one of my, uh, one of my chatters, but I'll, uh, I'll wait for my turn. What's your free electron chatter then? It's your turn. 
So the University of California at Berkeley came out with a new study showing that black households systematically pay more in electricity bills than white households. And I think you see that in Alabama, but you see that in lots of places. And largely the reason is because energy efficiency weatherization programs just haven't evenly targeted all populations. And so when you think about all of the weatherization we've done since the 70s, there's just been a lot less of it done in black households. I don't think it was... Uh, necessarily on purpose to exclude black people, although, you know, some would make that argument. I think it's honestly more just that the contractors that do this um, didn't make it a point to make sure that that they were working in all neighborhoods equally and evenly. And it's it's something that's frankly come out of the energy industry um, through this time of self-reflection around Black Lives Matter. Um, the one other thing I wanted to point people to is that uh, one of our uh, good friends in the uh, energy space, uh, Bi Hui uh, Ye, has come out with a climate justice series, and I'm featured in it, but there are many others that are featured in this podcast series. And, you know, she's really bringing um, intersectional conversation around diversity and climate justice um, directly from somebody who's worked in the energy industry for so long two folks in the energy industry. And I would definitely have everyone, you know, check it out. It's an extraordinary series. And frankly, she's been working on it for six to eight months. And it's very timely and when it was released. Okay, so as I mentioned, we are going to take a couple weeks off here as summer ramps up. And I presume that most of you are staying at home. But uh, when you're sitting out in your backyard or on your stoop and you need to relax with something to listen to that's a little bit more lighthearted. Um, I wanted to share some summer recommendations of podcasts that I'm listening to that I found quite engaging and delightful and a, a bit of a break from the chaos in the world. Um, so here are some recommendations of shows that I think you should listen to for your summer listening. Um, one is called Wind of Change, and it's all about a reporter investigating a theory that the CIA wrote the Scorpions' famous ballad, Wind of Change, to, um, to, to win the Cold War, basically. And it's a fascinating look at the history behind the CIA's uh, oper- cultural operations and whether or not there are actually people within the CIA who wrote this song, uh, Winds of Change from the Scorpions. Um, I am listening. I love that song, by the way. Yeah, it's a great song. It worked on me. <laughs> uh, I listened to a show that was produced actually last year by Jad Abumrad, who is the founder and co-host of Radiolab, uh, called Dolly Parton's America. And it is a look at why Dolly Parton is in an in an era when everything seems so divided and partisan, why Dolly Parton can um, appeal to so many different types of people across America. And so he takes her story and uses that as a story for America and the sort of the, the, the cultural cross-section of America. Very good. So well done. Um, what else am I listening to? I listened to this great show from 
Vox called Reset. They look at how technology is shaping our lives. It's a weekly show. You know, one of the recent shows is what does it mean to make music in 2020 during a pandemic? Uh, there's an episode of, on K-pop's online activism for Black Lives Matter. And then finally, the, the more recent show that I've been listening to is called Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. And these are um, episodes looking at companies that are really front and center in our lives right now. Uh, so the story of Purell, the story of the Carnival Corporation, the you know the struggling cruise ship company, uh, the story of McKinsey and Company, and how McKinsey shaped our understanding of modern capitalism. The story of Victoria's Secret, a company that has really fallen apart because of its retail shops suffering. So there's a cross section of business and cultural podcasts that can keep your ears happy as you work your way into summer. I can't wait, Stephen. I listened to Dolly Parton's America. It was great. I absolutely loved it. I also took your advice on another time you had recommended Rabbit Hole. Yes. And, uh, and I, w- I ended up, it was about QAnon and the YouTube algorithms and all that. And I ended up looking like the, the scream painting <laughs> by the end of it. That was terrifying. But thank you. Um, and that is another show from the New York Times. And the sound design in that is just so good. So if you haven't Listen to Rabbit Hole. Go ahead and, and add that to your list as well. So you got plenty to do. Um, hey, thanks a lot for being with us again this week. We'll catch you in mid-July. Catherine Jigger, what are you going to do with your two-week hiatus? What are you going to do, Catherine? I'm going to blow up that adult baby pool and just <laughs> chill, man. <laughs> Jigger, what about you? I think we're going to just take more day trips from here to like, you know, Annapolis and other places around the area to try to, you know, get out of the house. But but ultimately, I don't think we're we're not really going on vacation, per se. Yeah. Um, well, I am going to be in an undisclosed remote location trying to bunker. Yes. Not the bunker that you see me in regularly <laughs> in my, my recording closet here. <laughs> A different bunker, getting my head straight. And we will be back in mid-July with plenty more content for you. So um, if you want to go back and revisit our back episodes, we've got plenty there for you. You can also listen to the Interchange show. Tons of conversations there to keep your ears happy. And uh, if you want to submit some story ideas that we can pick up when we're back, go to the Energy Gang on Twitter or tag us all there and we will be happy to take a look at those. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. And this is the Energy Gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon. That's a wrap. I got the tagline of the show right that time.